Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. An agreement was reached between the governing liberals and the opposition NDP that will keep the liberals governing through until 2025. It's what's known as a supply and confidence or confidence and supply agreement. Essentially, the NDP have agreed that they will vote with the liberals on budget votes and other confidence matters. And in return, the liberals have agreed to focus on some priority areas that represent, they say, uh, some shared common ground between the two parties, notably That would include a national pharmacare program, also some kind of a national dental care program. Now, where the rubber meets the road, you've got the provinces that are going to have a big say in all of that. So what this looks like in the end remains to be seen. But it certainly does change the political dynamic in the nation's capital, perhaps allows the liberals to essentially govern as if they have a majority through until 2025, which would, of course, mark 10 years of liberal governance, 10 years of Justin Trudeau as prime minister. Throws a bit of a wrench, perhaps even into the conservative leadership race and the dynamic facing whoever comes out of that race later this year. So joining us uh, for some analysis of what this all represents, very pleased to uh, welcome to the program here today, Paul Wells, veteran uh, journalist and author based out of Ottawa. had a great piece this week at the Globe and Mail on the uh, implications of this deal. Paul, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Uh, you've covered politics a long time, obviously, and I mean, I think back to what, what almost happened in, in 2008 in terms of an actual coalition, but we've seen versions of, of this at the provincial level. How unusual or, or unconventional is this in your view? Um, there's a fair bit of uh, precedent for this, and since we're in an mm-hmm. era of uh, frequent minority governments at the federal level, it would have been surprising if something like this didn't get tried at some point. Uh, in uh, British Columbia from 2017 to 2020, uh, uh, John Horgan was uh, propped up by the tiny Green Party caucus in in that uh, in that province. At the beginning of that experiment, it was not at all clear which of the NDP or the Liberals was going to be asked by the lieutenant governor to form an election, and there was a bit of a delay after the 27 ele- election while everybody got their bids in with the Green Party. Um, uh, much longer ago in the 80s, there was uh, an agreement between the Liberals and the New Democrats in Ontario. Even though the Conservatives had won more seats than the Liberals, they hadn't won enough uh, to, to, mm-hmm. to stop this kind of thing. And that's how David Peterson became the Premier of Ontario. And um, I think in New Brunswick? Anyway, you, you, you see them here and there. Uh, yeah. It's uh, essentially an agreement. Confidence votes come up every once in a while in a parliamentary system. And it was agreement by one of the smaller parties not to vote against the largest party, uh, and, and, or, or, or one of the large parties. And, and, and that allows the large party to govern. There, there won't be any New Democrat cabinet ministers. Um, uh, it, it's nothing that elaborate. It's still Justin Trudeau's liberal government, but it's Justin Trudeau's liberal government without Jagmeet Singh's New Democrats, uh, taking pot shots at it during confidence votes. Well, I mean, you mentioned the agreement in BC. Of course, John Horgan pulled the pin on that agreement so once he thought it might benefit him, which indeed it did, parlayed that into a majority in the 2020 election. Uh, so how stable do you, do you think this agreement is? Um, you get the impression that it's kind of medium stable. Uh, everyone, <laughs> including Jagmeet Singh, is insisting on the right to uh, 
drop it depending on circumstances. If if Singh ever decided that the Liberal Party had become uh, unacceptable for whatever reasons, uh, he, he he's saying right now that he's uh, reserving the right to vote no confidence. So it's um, it's, it's it's a confidence and supply agreement light, I guess you could say. Um, uh, but it, it it accomplishes two things. It will probably hold. I mean, you know, intentions once stated uh, are, are are something you don't want to go back on because it makes you look unreliable. Uh, so it's reasonably sturdy, and it allows both the New Democrat and the Liberal leader to emphasize that they don't think the Conservatives uh, um, uh, under Aaron O'Toole, under Andrew Scheer, and under uh, the leaders that they view as likely out of this leadership race, they don't view them as essentially legitimate players in the in, in the political debate. Too scary, too far right, too radioactive, and therefore they're preemptively uh, forming an alliance not against the government in power, but against the likeliest alternative to that government, which would be the Conservative Party. Well, it's interesting. We look back over the last couple of months in politics and, you know, the convoy, the protests in particular, Justin Trudeau's approval rating was plummeting. And yet coming out of all of this, it's the conservatives that have been thrust into turmoil. Uh, the liberals are rewarded almost here with uh, with some stability, rewarded with uh, a de facto majority. It's quite a turn of events, which is why I guess you note in your piece that, that you know, the prime minister himself must be over the moon about all of this. Yeah, and it and it suggests I think a lot of people, including a lot of people who really didn't agree with most of what was being advocated by that truckers convoy, had a lot of people had complicated feelings about that convoy. Um, they, uh, a lot of people got the sense of frustration with 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 uh, lockdowns and, and various public health restrictions and with uh, the liberal government uh, more broadly. But even if you accept that, that that convoy is starting to look like a Titanic tactical mistake <laughs> it mm-hmm. um uh most of the ring leaders are in jail or going to jail um and uh now it has solidified the resolve of the parties that had the least to do with that convoy the ndp and the liberals against the party that uh got cozy with some of the members of the, of the convoy with the result that Kind of doesn't matter who the next conservative leader is. They're just going to have to sit and wait for up to three years uh, uh, in the um, least, what can you say about the opposition leader's job? It's the least rewarding job in politics. And lately, in the last few decades, it has just absolutely chewed up uh, people who who held that job. Uh, Andrew Scheer, uh, Aaron O'Toole, Tom Mulcair. Michael Ignatieff, Stéphane Dion. Um, uh, there's a long, long list of opposition leaders who got one shot at uh, winning power, didn't succeed, and and didn't get a, didn't get a second chance, didn't get a, to stick around for a second election. So, you know, uh, if Pierre Poiliev was thinking that he was going to uh, romp to the conservative leadership and then quite soon after have a shot at um, uh, uh, facing Justin Trudeau in an election. Now that second step looks mighty shaky. 
On the other hand, though, there's there's the argument here that if the NDP succeed in pulling the liberals too far to the left, uh, that this may bode well for the conservatives uh, come 2025 if, if we make it that far. Uh, so to what extent is this going to to change the liberal direction? Um, you know, you, you sort of hint in your piece that it's maybe 2015 all over again, sunny ways all over again. Uh, the liberals get to sort of look big picture at some of these, uh, you know, huge new policy initiatives. What, what about that side of it? Uh, since 2020, for obvious reasons, because of the pandemic, which forced or led uh, governments all over the place, and very spectacularly, the federal government in Canada, to pay people to stay home and pay businesses to stay open, even though they had no customers, we've had uh, a literally unprecedented uh, acceleration of spending at the federal level. And just about everyone assumed that at some point that was going to have to uh be reversed, that, that spending yeah. was going to have to be uh, restricted quite spectacularly to get back to the way we were in, say, November of 2019. This uh, agreement between the NDP and the Liberals makes it much likelier that spending is going to continue at very high levels, uh, basically for as long as the bank accounts will allow, uh, and um, um, that uh, deficits and debts will be, continue to be run up at, at at really substantial rates. Not a huge change of direction from Justin Trudeau, more the absence of a change of direction at a time when when a lot of outside uh, observers had assumed he would need to change direction. Um, so, you know, facing a, 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 a sternly um, uh, limited government uh, vision of things from the from the Conservative Party, and facing an objective situation where, look, they've been spending hand over fist for, for you know, now going on three years. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of backing down, uh, Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh look like they're intending to lean forward. But on the other hand, I mean, if the conservatives forsake or forfeit that middle and, and the liberals move further to the left, it feels like there's a big void or a big vacuum in, in federal politics. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I, I mean, I want to make really clear. I have no idea what the electoral results of this are going to be. I don't like. It, it's entirely sure. possible that uh, feeling confident, feeling protected, Justin Trudeau will get overconfident and make some of the mistakes he's made in the past. Uh, it's entirely uh, possible that people will not react well to having their their choices taken away from them, and this could backfire on the um, on the NDP certainly, and maybe on the Liberals. Um, but we're starting to see a strange situation where the the the, the uh, liberals have, are continuing a march to the left, as the conservatives seemed to be ready to 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 go to the the right, and that's mm-hmm. an awful lot of people who consider themselves moderate, who would simply like to have a finance minister who sounds like a finance minister when they speak, uh, who 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 seems preoccupied with things like the marginal rate of tax and things like that. Um, uh, are, are, are heading into a world where the liberals don't seem to care much about any of that stuff. And maybe the conservatives won't either. And I'm, I am now hearing from uh, business liberals, traditional progressive conservatives, especially progressive conservatives saying things like, uh, we tried it Stephen Harper's way. We've tried it for 15 years. There were good days, but this is not our party and we're not interested in playing any longer. And so the Conservative Party, which after all is not yet 20 years old in its modern incarnation, is not guaranteed uh, of surviving for an eternity as a united party. 
And meanwhile, and just a point on the NDP, we haven't talked much about here, the, the junior partner in this agreement, I guess. I mean, there's some potential upside, I suppose, to them, but there's a big downside here, maybe even irrelevancy as a possible downside. Yeah, the, 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 um, one of the worst elections in the history of the federal NDP was 1974, when um, uh, they were harshly judged for um, ha- having supported uh, Pierre Trudeau in uh, his first minority government from 72 to 74. Right. Um, they, uh, they were seen to have sold their soul. They were seen to have become irrelevant, that the real choices were between the conservatives and the liberals, and the NDP was just a kind of a prop. Um, and, uh, um, although the NDP in Ontario rebounded smartly, um, after, at the end of the, uh, 1980s with, a, a, a NDP government from 1995, the immediate reaction to their coalition or their, 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 their confidence deal with the, uh, David Peterson's liberals was, um, they fell off the map and Peterson was able to grow to a majority. So the junior party in these things often ends up looking a little silly, a little irrelevant, um, and uh, and doesn't do well at the next election. I think the reason a lot of New Democrats are saying they're very excited about this is they haven't been doing well anyway. <laughs> Under Jagmeet Singh, uh, this party is, is, is well past the uh, heady days after the 2011 election when uh, Jack Layton won 103 seats, and they, uh, I think, foolishly persuaded themselves that that was the new normal for the NDP. Um, now they get that they're a party that counts its seats in the, in the small number of dozens, and uh, they're kind of excited that even given that uh, that you know low ceiling, um, they can influence uh, a federal government to spend a lot of money on dental care for kids and pharmacare and uh, indigenous reconciliation and all the other stuff that's in this list. The LNG Canada project is a massive project being built on Canada's West Coast to export LNG to Asia and abroad. Now, a big part of that project is the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. And this pipeline, as you're well aware, has been the source of some controversy. Uh, Just recently... We've seen a push from Hollywood celebrities to again try to derail this project, led by Mark Ruffalo, but also involving Leonardo DiCaprio, Ben Stiller, and others. Uh, They are putting pressure on RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada, to cut off, to defund the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, which would be devastating, not just for this project, but for Canada's economy, and also in particular uh, for the economy of these First Nations communities. Uh, that have a vested interest in this project proceeding. They have signed on to this project, stand to benefit from this project, even now the possibility of some indigenous ownership. Well, our next guest suggests that these uh, Hollywood celebrities are guilty of eco-colonialism. She writes this week in the National Post that this approach is only going to serve to keep First Nations impoverished. Joining us on the line is Melissa Embarkey, policy analyst and outreach coordinator for the Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. You can find her piece from this week at nationalpost.com. Melissa, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me today. I mean, it's not the first time we've seen this from from a Hollywood celebrity activist, probably not the last time. Uh, but your thoughts on what you've heard so far, I guess Mark Ruffalo is sort of the face of this campaign. 
It's very disappointing, especially for the First Nations communities that want this project to go through. So what they're doing is they're amplifying a minority that opposed the project. And these are the same people who weren't part of, you know, any of the environmental assessments. You know, they chose not to be part of their community. And they're basically just standing on the outside wanting to squash any sort of economic development that goes into their community. And I think if, you know, a celebrity like Mark is going to make such assertions, he should, you know, talk to the community members and their elected leaders and get the whole picture before, you know, going on a campaign against the banks or against the company, because that's really unfair to those communities. Right. And look, the environmental arguments are are sort of separate, and we can touch on those, because this letter from these celebrities accuses RBC of bankrolling the climate crisis, which seems like uh, a real exaggeration. But they also say violating the rights of indigenous peoples. And that's a serious allegation to level. It's worth noting, I'm not sure if these celebrities are aware, but earlier this month, just recently, TC Energy signed equity agreements with 16 First Nations in B.C., around the coastal gasoline pipeline project. So if we're talking about the impact on indigenous communities, that that seems pretty relevant, doesn't it? That's very relevant. I mean, projects like this are going to, you know, drastically impact them for the coming decades. You know, it's going to allow them to invest in their own infrastructure. You know, I make it, you know, very well known that a lot of communities don't have clean drinking water you know, lack of teachers, lack of everything on reserves. And this could very well change that landscape for them. And it will allow these communities to make investments into their own uh, infrastructure. So to say that it's infringing on our rights is absolutely wrong because what he's doing is actually preventing us from being able to be self-sufficient. Which brings us to this term eco-colonialism, which, which is interesting in this context. How, how, would, how would you define or describe that? It's one of those things where environmental groups come into our communities and they actually prevent uh, any kind of prosperity. Because even after this pipeline, um, you know, after this issue has resolved, like it's going to eventually resolve somehow, Either it goes through or it doesn't. If it doesn't go through, these communities are going to continue to be in poverty. And it's actually preventing us from moving forward. And it goes against what reconciliation is. Because if we cannot look after ourselves, and it's going to, pre- and you know, in, in campaigns like this, prevent future investment, it, nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to want to come to our communities and, and want to invest in another type of project. So it's actually long-term preventing us and continuing to keep us in poverty, which is what this is. That's what eco-colonialism is. They're using a one one small part of our culture to keep us in poverty. Now, I know that there were those who would say, look, these Hollywood celebrities, they should stay out of politics, they should shut up and worry about making movies. I mean, at some level, I, I guess if someone has a platform and they want to use it to address important issues, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I would hope that they would be informed in doing so. What would your message be then to Mark Ruffalo or Leonardo DiCaprio? What, what do they need to know? What would you say to them? There are numerous issues going on on reserves and if you look at you know Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively 
They just invested money in a clean water program. It's issues like yeah. this that they should be addressing. Housing is another one that's going to be, you know, on our crisis list pretty shortly. You know, children being out of school due to the pandemic, that's going to be another issue that we're going to address. So if you're going to pick an issue from our community, look at housing, look at the water, look at, you know, our schooling system and determine if you should be investing money in this type of campaign or if you want to invest in anti-resource development and keep us in poverty. So they have a choice. And I just don't think they're informed of what what's really going on in Canada. And I would challenge them to really investigate what our issues are and help us from there. You know, don't hinder us from prosperity. I mean, how do you think that this is getting on their radar? Is this just them a case of, you know, they, they read on, you know, read a story on some news website and decide that they're going to get involved? Are they being fed misinformation by by other groups? What do you see as, as the, you know, the kind of the, the genesis of this campaign? It's definitely, it has a lot to do with misinformation. And I've seen a lot of it even happen in my own community. You know, People pick up on the current stories, on the stories that are the loudest and those stories that are in mainstream media, and they run with it, you know, not knowing what their situation is. So I think from an Indigenous perspective, what we've done is we've pulled ourselves back from really high-profile issues, and we've just kind of pieced it out. Like, what what is really going on here? You know, is it really... Yeah. Is it really a case of Indigenous rights? Is it a case of, you know, bad leadership sometimes? You know, so we look at all of the different causes before we actually form an opinion about what's happening in another community. And that is how we kind of weed out the misinformation that's out there. Yeah, and even the, you know, the information around, you know, climate change and the impact of these projects. Obviously, this has been a very thoroughly reviewed project here in Canada. Um, but, you know, the idea that, that LNG from Canada can displace coal in, in some parts of Asia, I mean, there's definitely an environmental upside to projects like this, to say nothing of the geopolitical implications of, you know, Canada being able to maybe displace energy from, from countries like Russia. That, that really seems to be uh, missing here, I think, from, from this conversation that these uh, stars are trying to advance. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of these First Nations have signed on to it, because it is going to make an environmental impact worldwide. You know, if countries, Asian countries, stop using coal as a way to, you know, as a way, as a use of energy, yeah. that would displace, you know, so much emissions. Um, Alberta did the same thing not long ago. You know, we phased out coal and now and natural right. gas is the main source of our energy. So initiatives like this, you know, on a global scale should really be, it has to be in this equation. You know, and Indigenous people are looking at other technologies as well, like carbon capture, uh, geothermal. You know, what can we do techno- like with technology to reduce emissions? There are options out there, but what we're actually doing is we're excluding industry from these conversations when we shouldn't be. Yeah, and I mean, if we look back to, you know, the protests that occurred just over two years ago, and maybe even Canadians are, are missing out on a lot of these important pieces of the conversation, because otherwise, this this feels to me like this is a story that we would celebrate as Canadians. You know, this has tremendous economic benefits, and when it comes to 
uh, you know, the consents of, of First Nations. We're doing it the right way. We're partnering with communities. Now we've got ownership stake. Like, you know, this this is a good news story, but it just feels like there's a lot of controversy and negativity that's that's there that shouldn't be. There definitely is. I mean, I think if you look at the larger picture and the impact of LNG, you know, you, there are far more benefits than there are um, cons in this story. And I think if we take away the, you know, the conflict within the community and we actually listen to the community and their leaders, we will know why, you know, they signed on to these agreements and, and we'll know why they wanted to bring this to their people because it's a it's a really good initiative and I don't think there are you know we're not really getting that out into the media and that's one of the things that I wanted to do was just to highlight some of the successes of what's really happening and maybe debunk some of the misinformation that's out there as well. We would all like to be able to declare the date on which COVID-19 That would be marvelous, Mr. Speaker, and I would certainly be the happiest man on earth in this parliament, certainly, to be able to tell you, Mr. Speaker, on what date this COVID-19 will disappear. Unfortunately, I don't know. That was Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos in the House of Commons this week, pressed by the opposition conservatives on when the Liberal government is prepared to end remaining federal COVID-19 mandates and restrictions. The answer from Jean-Yves Duclos was, we don't know. You know, and, and look, I mean, one can argue about when the best time to end those mandates is. The federal government doesn't even seem inclined to want to give Canadians an idea, a roadmap, a target. Now, there was a motion that was presented in the House this week calling on the federal government to end all remaining mandates. That motion was voted down. Joining us to talk more about it is the member who brought the motion forward, Michael Barrett, Conservative MP for Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands, and Rideau Lakes, opposition shadow minister for health. Mr. Barrett, good to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So did we learn anything this week about at least what the government's plans or intentions are for these remaining mandates? Well, we learned that uh, they either don't have a plan or they're unwilling to share it with Canadians. And it's, um, as you said, uh, there could be an argument made with respect to the timing for the end uh, to the mandates. Not all provinces have yet lifted their vax and mask mandates, but all 10 provinces have said the date by which those restrictions will be lifted. So when we have 10 chief medical officers of health from representing the the 10 provinces across the country saying it's safe to do so, it's uh, beyond curious why the federal minister of health, why he's his chief medical officer of health um, isn't prepared to do the same as uh, as their peers. Right. And, and a lot of this falls to provincial jurisdiction and a lot of the restrictions that affect people's day to day lives, mask mandates, business closures, capacity limits, et cetera, that that falls to the provinces. But obviously, I mean, the federal government's completely in control of travel, for an example. So help us understand, you know, the jurisdictional differences when we talk about federal mandates. What, what are we talking about? Yeah, absolutely. There's, of course, the, the most impactful one, uh, you know, with the, with the longest lasting consequences is the, uh, the vaccination requirement for federally regulated employees and, and federal employees. So that's our uh, federal public service, our Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, uniformed and civilian members, our Canadian Armed Forces, 
um, you know, Canada Border Service Agency, and so on. So those folks uh, with who, who did not provide uh, proof of vaccination, did not uh, receive the necessary uh, exemption, um, have been put on unpaid leave. And, uh, and, and so now would be the time. Uh, well, I'll, I'll get into to why it's the time in a second. So, so that's sure. one area of federal responsibility. The, uh, the transportation sector, as you mentioned, so planes, uh, trains like via rail, um, ferries, uh, those again are, uh, are areas of, of federal responsibility. And so, um, the federal government has exclusive control over those, even though they operate inside provincial uh, domains. You, you rightly pointed out that, you know, businesses, capacity limits and mask requirements and vax mandates in businesses or at venues is a provincial responsibility. And, and really, uh, that's, that's where we see the rub. You can be at, uh, you know, you can be at uh, the Rogers Arena or, you know, watching your favorite sports yeah. team play or, or, or at a movie theater, um, you know, shoulder to shoulder with people next to you now in, in almost every province across this country uh, without a mask and without proof of vaccination, but you can't get on the VIA train for 45 minutes or on a flight from, say, Ottawa to Toronto or, or Edmonton to Calgary uh, without proof of those things. So the science can't be different, um, you know, in downtown Edmonton versus uh, flying over Edmonton uh, up to Calgary or, or uh, the other way, sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and and so that's that's true right across the country. So so why is it that areas of of federal jurisdiction uh, seem to have this uh, different science being applied to them. Okay, and the point of then, why now? Why do you believe now is the time to, to end these remaining restrictions and mandates? Well, in early February, we gave the government uh, an opportunity. We put a motion uh, forward in the House asking for a plan by the end of February for them to present to Canadians on what benchmarks the, the government was looking at, that the Public Health Agency of Canada was looking at, that once those benchmarks were hit, you know, uh, case positivity rates, uh, hospital capacity, uh, wastewater surveillance numbers, uh, you know, those uh, epidemiological indicators, what were those benchmarks that would trigger the lifting of restrictions and the stages that, that they would be lifted in? And the government didn't, uh, didn't abide, they didn't take that cue, they didn't provide a plan. And since that time, we now have 10 out of 10 provinces in two of the three territories who've all... Uh, either lifted or have uh, said by which date they will lift. And so uh, we have the top doctor in virtually every jurisdiction in this country, except for the federal, uh, the federal chief medical officer of health, who is willing to say that it's safe to do so. So uh, the, the, it's, it's confusing, rightly confusing to Canadians, that if they're all looking at the same science, it makes sense that everyone is doing the same thing, but we have one outlier, and that's the federal government. So the motion itself was pretty straightforward then, uh, calling on the federal government to, to end these mandates. So tell us about the debate and the vote on that. Uh, well, it was, you know, the, it's, it's interesting how these things play out, especially this week in the context of, of the new um, you know, NDP Liberal coalition agreement that, that they hatched. So you have to see how some of this is going to break on, on party lines. But when we had the debate in, uh, in February with respect to asking for the plan, the conservative uh, official opposition um, did get the support of the Bloc Quebecois, but the NDP and the Liberals voted against it. Now, I think it was three days later, uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, uh, said at a press conference that the Prime Minister should release a plan to end the mandates after having just voted against that in the House. So 
there's obviously a sign that, that people wanted that plan. And that was consistent in the debate in the House this week. We heard that uh, from, from the Bloc. We heard that from the NDP that they do want the plan. It does seem like it's time. There's a lot of concern about people who've lost their jobs. There is recognition that we've had uh, great uptake on vaccination, which provides us with an incredible amount of protection. The hospital capacity seems to be there and that, you know, there is this growing consensus with our allies around the world and, uh, and with the, um, the, the provinces and territories that uh, it is time to, to, to lift some of those restrictions. But the vote went, um, the vote broke very clearly with the NDP and the Liberals voting against and the bloc uh, still seeking a plan first. Uh, and, and, that, and that lines up with their area of exclusive interest, and that's the province of Quebec, uh, which is affecting the lifting of their restrictions uh, in about two and a half weeks time or, or, or three weeks time. So uh, immediately would have outpaced Quebec by a couple of weeks. And so um, with the dates not being matched up, they weren't prepared to support it. So where does that leave us now on, on these issues? Well, we're going to continue to press the government. You know, this is a real accountability uh, issue of accountability. We've seen throughout the COVID pandemic that the government uh, hasn't always uh, been prepared. And, and in fact, uh, they've the, the opposite was true. They were, they were unprepared. And uh, we saw that with our lack of an emergency stockpile, with it having expired and been disposed of. And so the government needs to be held accountable for that. With the vaccine manufacturing and procurement, they originally threw in CanSino, and, uh, and then that deal fell through. And now with Medicago, which has been uh, scuttled by the WHO, not giving it approval this week. So that's the Canadian-made vaccine. So again, uh, th- they need to be held accountable for that. And so we need to make sure that we're checking the government's homework on whether or not they're making decisions for political purposes or they're making decisions you know, based on, on the science and, and what's in the best interest of Canadians, it's really important that you know, we, a lot, we know a lot more about COVID uh, two, you know, two, years, uh, two years since the start of it than we did you know, in, in March of 2020. And you know, now uh, we, we need to shift to a time of uh, personal responsibility over government regulation. And uh, I think that you know, the government needs to be transparent with Canadians. We did, we did in uh, massive numbers, some of the best numbers in the world, exactly what we were told, whether it was with uh, restrictions to our mobility, to, with lockdowns, with rolling up our sleeves and getting vaccinated, uh, and you know, not seeing our loved ones, not traveling, and on goes the list. So we're good at doing what we're asked to do, but we need to be given the right information. And so, you know, our job as the official opposition is to hold the government to account. We're going to keep doing that. We want a plan. And, and I've communicated very clearly to the federal health minister, hey, give us that plan. Let's, let's find out uh, what, you're, you know, what, what, what uh, the horizon looks like or the different scenarios look like um, that will trigger the end to these mandates. Let's communicate that to Canadians. Let's get on with all the other important things that we need to do in this country, like pandemic-proofing us for the future, like dealing with the opioid crisis, like talking about properly funding our hospitals so that and our provinces so that we don't have capacity issues in hallway healthcare in the future. So there's a lot of work to do, but we need to see that the government is is engaging in good faith with Canadians. Orel Braun, international relations professor at the University of Toronto, senior member of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. Professor Braun, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so what did you make, uh, not just of, of, I guess, President Biden's speech today, but uh, what we saw and heard from Western NATO leaders in particular, just, just how unified and, and how resolute are they, in your view? It's a mixed bag. Uh, the rhetoric mm-hmm. certainly 
uh, suggests uh, that uh, uh, NATO is unified. The reality uh, tells us otherwise. Uh, if you listen to the Hungarian leader, he doesn't want to have sanctions that would stop the flow of oil and gas uh, from Russia. And that is what would hurt Russia and Russia's economy the most. Yeah. And when you look at uh, transferring uh, armaments to Ukraine, the kind that uh, President Zelensky is asking for, you see countries like Slovakia that are ready to transfer very potent S-300 uh, missiles that they got from Russia in the old days that can be refitted and used by the Ukrainians against Russian aircraft. But the Biden administration has not yet moved on that because they would have to replace these in Slovakia with Patriot missiles. So there is a considerable gap between the rhetoric and the reality on the ground. And it is also rather disturbing how uh, Mr. Biden, who means well, bless him, uh, would say things that uh, would indicate something that resemble the contours of a strategy, and then it's taken back. It was very important when you first heard at the conclusion of his speech in Poland today, when he said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. That is Vladimir Putin. And this essentially right. was asking for a regime change. It's basically saying that Vladimir Putin has become a war criminal, that he has led his country to disaster, he has committed unspeakable crimes, and therefore the goal is to change that. Very promptly after that, the White House had to walk this line back. What is the message to Russia if the President of the United States and his government cannot get their act together? Well, is, is all of this to some extent then letting Vladimir Putin off the hook? What does it mean for the on-the-ground situation in Ukraine? Again, listening to what Mr. Biden said in uh, speaking to reporters, he said, well, sanctions do not deter we have to keep them on for a long time, and then there will be all that pain in Russia, and that will stop this. Well, how much pain can the Ukrainians take? Because there's no type of brutality that Vladimir Putin is not prepared to engage in. And even so-called moderates in his regime, like the former prime minister and president, Medvedev, referred to the use of nuclear arms. So there's this kind of nuclear saber rattling, which is profoundly mm -hmm. disturbing because this would be an attempt to use nuclear blackmail. So how far is Vladimir Putin and his regime, how far are they prepared to go? And what is the West prepared to do to ensure that Ukraine survives? It's one thing to say that, yes, eventually the sanctions will lead to sufficient pain that Russia will have to change policy, but will there be an independent Ukraine still standing six months from now? Can they see city after city devastated? Uh, are they not entitled, if this is the plan by the West, to be given the wherewithal to resist militarily, to protect their cities, to get those MiG fighters that they request from Poland, that Poland is willing to transfer, to get the anti-aircraft missiles, to provide more uh, in terms of uh, help across the board in, in as far as weapons are concerned. And when we look at uh, what Britain, for example, is providing and Estonia is providing on a per capita basis, 
they've given vastly more than United States. United States could do much more than they have done so far, and depends on the Biden administration. It is wonderful to talk about unity. Unity in NATO is an important asset, and it is worth striving for that. It is also essential to try to avoid uh, enlarging the conflict, that there's not a direct NATO-Russia confrontation. But that balance has to be finely adjusted at all times to make sure that there is a larger vision. And the only Western leader who has enunciated a larger vision, who has clearly stated that you need to rebuild Western deterrence because quite evidently Western deterrence has failed in terms of preventing Russia from invading Ukraine. If deterrence had worked, they would not have invaded Ukraine. That person who enunciated that vision is Boris Johnson, who said that the invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's invasion, must fail and must be seen to fail. Well, you can't do that unless you provide much more aid to the Ukrainian forces that have put up remarkable, almost miraculous resistance against overwhelming odds. Well, and that's an important point because... Like it feels like this has been a disaster so far for Putin that that he is failing, but there is a danger, maybe I guess, for the West in in assuming that that means that this will be a failure, that this is a, essentially a done deal. But it's not, is it? We we can't guarantee at this point anything. Uh, certainly not not Russian failure here. Exactly. So we are taking snapshots of what is happening, and uh, there is a kind of disturbing tendency in some quarters to have this type of congratulatory approach where we talk about, look how united the NATO is, and look mm-hmm. how we are instituting sanctions, and look how the Germans have turned around 180 degrees, and now they are going to meet the 2% plus of GDP that, uh, that they were supposed to commit themselves to. And in fact, they're spending 100 billion euros this year to revive the German military. All these things are really important, and we should welcome them. But we have to step back and look at the larger picture. Yes, Russia may be suffering a good deal of pain. Yes, many soldiers are dying. But if in the end, Vladimir Putin manages to crush Ukraine, if in the end, city after city in Ukraine begins to look like Mariupol, and Ukraine collapses, then it doesn't really matter much that the oligarchs are suffering or Mm -hmm. that the Russian economy is doing poorly, Vladimir Putin would still be in charge. He would still have the nuclear weapons. He would then control Ukraine. And at that stage, he could very well use nuclear blackmail and say to Mr. Biden, take the sanctions off, or you are risking a nuclear war. What would be the response? I want to get your thoughts as well on, on Canada's position in all of this. I mean, obviously, Canada is, is a part of the NATO alliance, part of the G7. Justin Trudeau was in Brussels for this meeting. But in terms of our relevance, we're, we're limited right now in what we can provide to the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, we've had some, some very vague talk about Canada possibly increasing defense spending, but certainly nowhere like the commitment we've seen from, from Germany. Uh, how relevant is Canada in all of this in your view right now? Canada is much more relevant than we often think. We are not only members of NATO, we are a G7 country. We have a large economy. 
we are an industrial power. We are highly respected internationally. We have a commitment uh, in NATO, and we, in fact, we lead a battalion-sized force in Latvia, which at the very least would be tripwire in case Russia should invade that uh, relatively new NATO state. We also have a problem in the Arctic because Russia has militarized the Arctic and there is a greater possibility of navigation through the Northern Sea Route, which the Russians want to control. So we are facing multiple threats. We have tremendous economic capability, but we're not doing what Germany has done. We have not committed ourselves to increase defense spending to what was agreed upon back in 2014 at the NATO-Wales conference. We are nowhere nearly close to that 2%, and I'm puzzled why we're not doing this. We are saying on the, all the right things, but are we prepared to actually implement policies that would demonstrate a real commitment. And it is quite correct, as you say, that we are rather limited in what we can do military right now because we have allowed our military to be so starved of equipment. We do have funds, though. We can purchase defensive weapons for Ukraine from other sources, mm -hmm. and perhaps we ought to do that. We can do symbolic things. For example, three prime ministers from Eastern European states, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia, traveled to Kiev to demonstrate solidarity with Ukraine to show defiance of Vladimir Putin. Perhaps we should send our Minister of Defense or our Foreign Minister to Kiev to demonstrate that Canada doesn't just say we stand with Ukraine, but we actually take certain steps and we demonstrate that. So there are many things that Canada can do, and we have improved our performance. We are helping Ukraine in many ways. It is uh, the right thing that we will welcome Ukrainian refugees. But what we want to do ultimately is not just to be a better safe haven for refugees. The ultimate goal needs to be to preserve an independent Ukraine that can become a successful, stable democracy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.